Well, hello there, Canada, and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix in Canada. I'm your host, Dylan Clark-Moore, and today we're going to be talking about 2013's Coherence. Before we get into things, I do want to issue a few warnings about this episode. First of all, this conversation spoils pretty much every major plot point in Coherence. So if that's the kind of thing you get salty about, please go watch the movie first. It's real good. Also, we do keep an explicit tag on the show in case of language that may not be suitable for all listeners. With all that out of the way, let's get into it. I'd like to introduce you all to today's guest, the co-host of the only Star Wars podcast you need, the Quarter Portion Podcast. Welcome, Mr. Patrick Fletcher. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. It's very nice to have you here. I've uh, listened to your voice a lot, and it's weird to see the face attached to it. That's not a comment on your face. (laughs) (laughs) Likewise, Dylan. um, A good friend, a mutual friend of ours uh, turned me on to your podcast quite a while ago, and getting into this podcasting thing has been a lot of fun for me so it's finally nice to sit down and enjoy somebody else's being a guest on somebody else's podcast is this your first time guesting on somebody else's it is uh patrick let's break the ice the way that we always do tell me something interesting that you've been watching on netflix recently well coherence i mean the movie that we're going to talk about tonight is is a big one for me but recently as far as something that i've seen um something new that i've seen it just came out the other day the uh cloverfield paradox which it was interesting how Netflix actually put this out. And this is one of the reasons that I watched it. I think it was the day after the Super Bowl. They put out, or maybe it was the Super Bowl. It was Bowl. during the Super Bowl. That's the, right. The ad for it was during the Super Bowl, and it was after the game was over. That's when they launched it. Which is like unheard of. Usually you'll get a teaser trailer, and then a few months later you'll get a full trailer, and then you'll get a film. Even on Netflix, you'll right. get that. You get stuff that's a year out. And this was like the trailer, and then it was like available. What? And I was watching with my girlfriend, and she's like, well, throw it on. Let's see what it's like. Yeah. And it was it's interesting because when we watched that, one of the first things that kind of came through my brain was this. Is, it's got a lot of a feel of coherence. And I remembered, uh, I think I sent you a message right afterwards. Hey, you did Cloverfield Paradox, man. It's, it's kind of neat. It's kind of like a Philadelphia experiment slash, what was that film with Sam Neill? Event Horizon, okay, which yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of, but the good aspects of Event Horizon I found in this Cloverfield Paradox. It's it's neat how they're stitching this right. kind of expanded universe from uh, Cloverfield from that original film into other things. So that's that's the most recent thing I've watched on uh, Netflix. The, the, you liked it though? I mean, I, not I, to like diminish things to just good or bad, but you enjoyed the experience. Definitely. I mean, from a rotten. Tomatoes perspective, I'd give it a fresh rating for sure. Okay, um, I don't. I mean, it's not a five out of five. It's not a masterpiece, but it was worth the watch. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw the tweet uh, that somebody put out. I think it was the same night, and they were saying that Cloverfield came out after months of hype, and then big hype, and then uh, was it a hundred Cloverfield Lane? Was that the second one? That's right, with John Goodman. Yeah, so a hundred Cloverfield Lane. They announced it a month before it came out. 
And was then, it that quick? Yeah. And then for this one, they announced it the day it came out. Like and the same for the next one, J.J. Abrams is just going to drive by your house and huck DVDs at the window. <laughs> the okay. drive-by shooting of promotions. But it worked. Like, you watched it, right? A lot of people did. Yeah. I remembered watching um, one of the Star Wars podcasts that I watch uh, is... Uh, Collider. I, I watch a lot of Collider stuff. Uh, their movie talk, their TV talk. Their uh, they have one called Jedi Council, and they had mentioned it. I think it was on Collider Movie Talk on YouTube, and uh, they were all as kind of taken back as everybody else. Says, "Oh, look, that looks like a cool trailer. I wonder when that's coming out." Oh, it comes out after the game. And to be fair, a lot of these critics, a lot of them didn't like it. I mean, and you know, fair enough to each their own. But they thought the marketing was savvy, because there's probably a lot of people who wouldn't have watched it. Yeah. Had it, you know, well, that's a few months down the road. And then when it finally comes out, it's like, yeah, I remember that trailer. What was that about? But it bang, like right away. Yeah. I think they probably got a lot more viewers yeah, because sure. of that. So. Yeah. I was talking in the last episode with Courtney Enlow about how Netflix doesn't really seem to have nailed marketing movies yet because we did Gerald's Game. And we were both like, why? Like, this movie is so under viewed like nobody's seen this nobody's talking about it and even when it came out nobody was really talking about it and it's really good like it's super challenging and there are all sorts of content warnings that come along with it but we're just like how is netflix gonna really get people to care beyond just because their marketing tactic seems to have been to just put it in your list <laughs> and yeah. put it at the top of your list yeah and just hope that it grabs your attention right away and that's the only thing they've really done as opposed to you know, this big one-time ad buy and just make sure that you know about it. I think that Netflix is kind of learning as they go, too, yeah. because as far as entertainment goes, I mean, I know it's been around for a few years now, but now that they've become such an entity in production, I mean, it's not just, they're not just renting you videos anymore, essentially. They're producing their own content and a lot of it now. Yeah. So I think, I think that they've been challenged or kind of been forced in a way to, you know, change the playing field in a lot of respects. I mean, these aren't movies that are going to hit theaters. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about Netflix films being, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, being eligible for like Academy Awards, yeah. for instance. But to be eligible for Academy Awards, it literally needs to play on a certain number of screens um, in LA yeah. uh, in order to be eligible for that. Now, there are some... There's some really fine content for Netflix that, I mean, in any any other universe would be award worthy. Yeah. Um, so I think that they're kind of they're kind of forced to change the game. Yeah. So these little experiments, like throwing out a trailer and then having it, you couldn't do that in the theater. Yeah. You know, you couldn't get every. Oh my God! Well, it comes out tonight. Well, what am I doing tonight? If you're already <laughs> right. sitting at home and you see a trailer, it's as simple as just clicking on it. Yeah. You you're know? already watching TV. Like yeah. You're already, it's smart for sure. Absolutely. Netflix yeah. itself is just such a game changer as far as you know, film and television mm -hmm. entertainment. Well, that's two big wins for them recently with, uh, I mean, Bright was huge Netflix wise. Yeah. In terms of the audience or in terms of at least the conversation about it. Not that most of the conversation was good. Um, and then this one. So, so yeah, it's, it's just cool to see. Well, that's enough about our viewing habits. The movie that we're actually here to talk about this episode is from the year 2013 from director James Ward Birkett, previously known for directing the video game version of Rango. We're I did not know that. <laughs> I guess he wrote the movie, so they let him direct the game. Uh, we're going to be talking about Coherence, 
a movie that until Patrick recommended it, I did not know existed. Let's take a look at how Netflix describes this movie, and uh, maybe we can pick a favorite. So first of all, when you hover over the title, it says, It wasn't the passing comet or the power outage that ruined their dinner party. It was the alternate realities. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Some of those are so weak compared to the films that they're promoting. Yeah, that's rough. I get what they're doing, but God, that's... It makes it sound so corny. And it's, it's super... not a corny movie. Yeah, it just sounds real cheap. Uh, okay, so let's try this one. When a comet causes a neighborhood to lose power, four couples gathered for a dinner party investigate a nearby house whose lights are still on. That's that's See, more of a teaser. Yeah, I like get, that. It better. gets you more in. You might get a little disappointed or a little confused if you're expecting like a thriller, and mm-hmm. instead you get everything that coherence is. But no. but there you go. And the movie is described as both cerebral and mind bending. I would agree with that. All right, so Patrick, I'm going to let you start off this conversation. I'm going to ask you the big question. Why did you want to talk about Coherence? I think we were talking about this uh, when we first met a short while ago. Um, I like movies that are layered. I like movies that kind of... Movies that have multiple levels of story. And I think that Coherence has a lot of levels of story. Another film we were talking about earlier, I don't know if it's on Netflix anymore, was is Pontypool which is another movie like that that's a multi-layered film. Now, there's great films that I have no interest in watching again. Like, there's a lot of films that I've seen, so that's a great movie. But I, I don't know if I'd spend another two hours watching it again. Okay. Coherence, to me, is, is it's my favorite type of movie because it's a movie... I've seen it a, over a dozen times. And I don't watch... It's like books. I Usually, I read a book once, and it's hard for me to read a book twice. It's hard for me to watch a movie twice unless it's really and captivating to me and one of the reasons that coherence really grabbed me was because every time i've watched coherence almost almost every time i've watched it since the first time i've noticed something that i didn't notice the first however many times whether it's um one of the uh one of the articles that they left in the box or whether it was oh wow that person I didn't think that that person had come back to the same house. I don't think that that person knows where they are. Or um, what was one of the the specific points? There's there's one point of the film that I'm sure we'll get into later where it was, uh, I think it was uh, that scene where Hugh and Amir, two of the characters uh, who leave very early on in the film, um, when they come back, it's obviously a different Hugh and Amir that have, that have come back. But that scene where everyone's talking about them using the green glow sticks to go out and look at the comet and they kind of slowly pull out of their pocket the red glow sticks and look at each other like what's going on mm-hmm. what are we doing here we need to get out of here right um i think it was the layers of the film that really attracted me to it and it's one of the reasons it's become one of my favorite one of my favorite films another thing that i really liked about coherence as far as um one of the reasons i wanted to talk about it was i like this it takes me back to when i saw the blair witch project Say what you will about the Blair Witch Project. Some people like it, some people don't. But it definitely changed the game as far as filmmaking goes, that sort of found footage kind of genre. Um, now, this isn't really a found footage kind of genre, but it's filmed that way. It's filmed in a way that the camera will blur in and blur out. It's almost like the, the cameraman's trying to capture the focus of people as they're moving in and out. I don't know how many cameras they use for this movie, but I don't, I don't think it's many. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was either one or two. And yeah, yeah, 
Another thing about coherence, one of the reasons I want to talk about it, one of the reasons that I really like it is this. I, I really, I admire a filmmaker who can take like one set or maybe two sets and a cast and pull an intriguing hour and a half or two hours out of that. Um, for something that's, I think, is technically science fiction, I think the only special effect in the film is when they walk outside and look up in the sky and see the comet. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I mean, there's one scene where you can kind of, I think she's looking in the windows at one point and you can see two mics. But, I mean, that's that's easy to do because one, one of them's got a kind of a gag in his mouth so you could get anyone that kind of looked like him to fill that role. Have you ever seen the film The Man from Earth? No. That's one um, that's it's it's a totally different story than this, but it's the same. In a the, the, the movie takes place in in one house. Uh, there's a few scenes on the front yard, and everything everything else takes place in the living room of this mm-hmm. house in front of a fireplace. Uh, to be able to you know maintain entertainment for two hours in an intriguing story with a small cast, unknown cast too. I mean, I don't. I've seen a few people in Coherence before. Hugh's wife, uh, her name's escaping me, Beth. She was the one who was in the, the feng shui and the granola yeah. candles and all right. that and her little her little ketamine yeah. <laughs> uh, rescue remedy. I've seen her before, and I think I may have seen um, one other actor in the film, the guy who plays Hugh, her husband, the guy with the beard, the tall guy. I think I've seen him somewhere, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Right, and to, I, I like it when I walk into a film, and it it seems more real. It seems uh, I can I can invest myself in the characters better rather than seeing Brad Pitt or um, Kevin Costner or somebody yeah. I've seen you know in a thousand different roles. Yeah, it's definitely not a star vehicle for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you never watched Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, that's Xander. Mike is Xander. Mike is Xander. Oh, you're right. It's been so long since I've watched that. Mike, meaning that Mike, the... Uh, the character Mike. The drinker. Is, yeah, is Nicholas Brendan, who played Buffy, for, or who played Xander on Buffy. That's for, right. For seven That's years. right. Yeah. <laughs> this is funny. I was talking to my girlfriend about this tonight before I came out to meet you. Mike's character in Coherence is an actor. Yeah. And he says he was on uh, Roswell, Roswell, which I never watched. Right. But he talked about being on a, a WB sci-fi show for four years, which is just like oh, very crazy. on the nose for Nicholas Brendan being. And he also jokes about, oh, man, that's especially funny because Mike in the movie is embarrassed that what is it, Lorraine? Is that her name? Lori. Lori. Yeah. That. Lori doesn't recognize him from the That's show. That's right. And she's like, I'm a big she's fan like, of that Who'd show. you play, so Joe? You, you just played out his worst fear. <laughs> That's great, too, because she was like, yeah, is it, uh, who, who are you? Who are you? Who'd you play on the show, Joe? Well, what, what episodes were you on? I was on all the shows all produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he pretends to not know her name. Is it yeah. Lori or Laura? Right. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. I mean, this movie has two big things going on in that just watching the movie at first I really liked the movie and we can get into why and then I think a totally separate conversation was reading about how this movie got made afterwards and realizing how much even more impressive it is once you put it into context and you probably I haven't read much of anything about how this movie was produced I've only seen it so you can fill me in on some of that well let's start with what's in the movie itself first and I don't often do this but I think like a general plot synopsis is fine because I mean if you haven't watched this movie yet I would definitely recommend that you do because it's very cool it's interesting it's 
about like the Netflix description says four couples that get together for this dinner party and at first it's just kind of like fun banter between friends and then weird shit starts to happen (laughs) Um, for a good portion of it too I mean it takes a little while I I was interested in it from the very beginning but it takes a little while to get some traction into what it becomes yeah I mean you get the first sign of weirdness right off pretty close to the beginning when her phone kind of shatters as she's talking on it when Emily is that her name? M yeah Emily M um, yeah, that her her phone shatters as she's talking on it. So it does, you know, drop this breadcrumb that like stick with it. There's weird stuff that's going to happen, but it's entertaining enough as it's just the friends sitting around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to compare this to uh, I just did an interview not too long ago with uh, somebody who directed a found footage horror movie and how he uh, this was unlisted owner and how the characters that he wrote were so realistic that a lot of critics of the movie were like you're just putting like shitty people on screen who are just talking and that's all they're doing and they just they seemed like real shithead people and he was like no but I wrote them that way (laughs) and I mean this is a different kind of way of doing that sort of really naturalistic thing where yeah it's a bit heightened and it's a bit it's a bit more polished but you still have that like that feeling of of camaraderie and of people just just hanging out shooting the shit. You really felt that these people had known each other for decades. Yeah, it, it, I, I get where you're coming from. It's like one of those scenes in a Tarantino movie where it's just maybe not to the same extent of a conversation, but just conversation. Because this is these are things that happen in real life, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you can do what I guess I'm comparing it to compared to unlisted owners. You can do it in a way where it just seems like what you're doing is just recording a conversation. Mm-hmm. And you can also do it in a way where it almost seems that way, but it seems like there's enough of a layer of polish to it. You're like, okay, I'm still entertained while you're doing it, and I'm not watching unedited reality TV. They're not just blabbering. Exactly. Like, yeah. there's a there's a purpose to, to what's being said, so I don't know whether that's in... Well, I mean, like I, I, I said, we'd talk about the creation of the movie a bit later, but... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're enjoying the movie even before the weird shit starts to happen. And then it does start to happen. And, I mean, like, the comet is really a red herring. Yeah. Because there's not anything that they're going to be able to do about the comet. They're not going to be able to stop it. But this weird strangeness starts happening where all the power goes out in the neighborhood. And they see that there's this one house two blocks down that has the lights on still. And so they, uh, some of them decide to to go out to to venture Hugh and Amir. Yeah, so two of the characters, Hugh and Amir, they decide that they're going to go and check it out. Um, And they go out, they come back, and then there start to be these signs that that something is amiss. And eventually it's revealed that this comet has caused, like, a fracture in reality. And that, you know, walking out of the house is creating... Transports you from one version of reality to a different reality. And it's just, it's very... It's done in this really cool way. And, I mean, sometimes I felt like the <laughs> the scenes where they were trying to explain it, they just it, it was a bit more painful than, like, the naturalistic fun banter stuff. Yeah. But they also had some heavy lifting to do where they were like, well, I guess we're trying to explain it now. And they, they were trying to make sure that you understood what was happening. Right. Which, I mean, is always the challenge of exposition. But... It felt particularly clunky in this otherwise very natural sounding movie where it seemed like, okay, now I have 
I have this thing that I have to explain. And, oh, look, we found this textbook that happens to very conveniently explain. That was explain. a little, yeah, that felt a little um, forced mm -hmm. uh, with the textbook. But it becomes so crucial to the the underlying plot. Um, but I don't think they really needed it. I think they could have found Hugh's brother's notes in the house or something like that. I mean, I know how it plays in later, but I did really like the scene where where Hugh is asking everyone at the dinner table before things really start to go crazy, before they leave. And he says, does anybody have a cell reception? Am I? And he's like, no, nobody. Um, is, your, it, does, is your internet working? That's down too. And his wife's like, why? What's wrong? And he's like, nothing. It's just my brother. You know, he's a quantum. He's into, you know, quantum physics. And he said that uh, when the comet was going over, if anything strange happened, that I should, you know, we should stay inside and I should do my best to get a hold of him. And then suddenly you get this bit of an ominous tone. Um, well, what do you mean something strange? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I do understand where the, the whole textbook thing became a little forced. But without that exposition of Schrodinger's cat... And quantum decoherence versus, you know, quantum physics. You kind of needed it. Yeah, I don't. Know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it did. It did feel a little forced with. The yeah, book. I yeah. mean, it. It felt like the, it was a band aid that they couldn't figure out a better way to rip off. So they were like, "Fuck it, let's <laughs> just do some science jibber jabber. Let's let's have this, you know, this brother who left a textbook, uh, in here for us to figure out. And then once they got past that, then they could move then into everything else. Yeah. Um, we don't need to go through plot, 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 plot point. But it is, it's interesting stuff that ends up being revealed, but it's also equally as interesting in that if you compare this to like a typical thriller movie or a typical horror movie, a lot of the times what you end up having is a movie split up into two sections where it's like, here's what happened before everything went to shit, and that's when you care about the people. And then right. after everything goes to shit, then all of a sudden you're just in survival mode. And this movie doesn't do that. No. Because who these people are and the challenges that they've brought into this party don't just disappear because they're faced with like particular or they become circumstances. They become, you know, even more focused on like Mike's drinking. Right. You know? Yeah. And a lot of the times you can, uh, a lot of times in movies like this, like all of the personality and all the characteristics just get dropped because like, oh no, this like earth shattering thing happened. But in this movie, when they're in crisis, potentially at the end of the world, they're still totally bogged down by the drama of the day to day yeah. and by their, you know, the, the jealousies that are inherent to them. Because, yeah, I mean, like if you're not immediately in a life or death situation, you're it's not you're not going to change who you are. And which kind of feeds into the, the, the plot in a really cool way, because they're challenged to think of what they're doing at the other house. Some of them are. Well, in Mike that, in particular. Yeah, nobody does that except for Mike, <laughs> which was, I mean, Mike was, I would say, probably the most interesting character. He's my favorite character in the film, for sure. In that he, Mike, who's played by Nicholas Brendan, he almost immediately becomes hostile. So the, the house that has the lights on down the street, as they approach it, they realize that it's their own house but in a different reality. That's his house. Right. So I guess for the first, like, 90% of the movie, you only think there are two realities, and there's just yeah. this. There's so much more to that. Please watch this movie before yeah. <laughs> listening to this podcast. It's very cool. Um, but even when it's just, when Mike think it's, thinks it's the two houses, he's just, like, he's in such a constant, like, fragile state 
that he almost immediately gets aggressive towards the other house and he's like well i'm thinking about going over there and like starting shit with them so that means that the other mike is probably doing the same thing which is then getting him equally you know he's creating this like feedback loop of paranoia and rage where he just really wants to kill somebody and you're yeah. like bro like why is that your default like relax yeah but he also knows that that's something that's inherent to himself and he doesn't trust somebody who's like him to not be insane mm-hmm. and to not make terrible decisions which was interesting and frustrating to watch because i was like bro like don't do this you don't have to do this and but that's who this character is he's this very self-destructive person yeah which is obviously why he's uh he seems to be you know a, a reformed alcoholic at this point when it comes to mike again like i said before he's probably my favorite character in the film because he's definitely got the most he he generates the most drama out of it and i really liked when Hugh was describing when he when he brought the textbook in and he was describing the thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat you know what I mean which is pretty central to the film the first thing out of Mike's mouth is okay so we're the cat and we're in the box so does that mean we have to decide whether we're going to be the dead cat or whether we're going to live how about I go over there and kill myself I'm just half kidding and it's, everyone's looking at it like, okay, whoa, like you just said, just calm down, man. Like, yeah. let's let's try to rationalize. It's literally this. the first thought that he has yeah. is like, as soon as there's a second version of himself, like, how deep is your self-loathing that as soon as you find out there's a second version of yourself, you want to kill it? Yeah, I mean, because you're worried about what it's going to come over and do to you. But I don't think it's even that. I think that's like something that he eventually justified. Yeah. To himself, well, he tries to blackmail himself at one point too. Yeah, and that was one of the neat things about the film because he thinks about he he writes and it wasn't even th- at that point. There's another point in the film where that happens too, where where Hugh he said he left a note at the door of the other house. You know, hey, don't mean to freak you guys out. Just want to know if I could borrow your phone. And then immediately, bang, bang, bang on the door. Oh, there's a big dude at the door. They open the door, and the note that he just wrote is on their door. Mm-hmm. That's like I said, layers. Well, and I, I really like how it how it reveals itself and how it continues to like escalate and build on itself, and uh, and even if they do have to kind of clumsily explain it sometimes, like the the world keeps getting bigger in this really interesting way, and then watching how people react to it is is equally interesting. I mean, one of the most incredible parts of the movie is toward the end. When spoilers for the end of this movie, please go watch it. Uh, <laughs> you know, towards the end of the movie, after Emily has had this like chance encounter where she saw who she thought was her fiance, Are yeah, they engaged. I th- I don't think they're engaged, but you know they're they've been together for a while, but their relationship right. is on a a knife's edge. Well, her her long term boyfriend, Kevin. Kevin, yes. Um, she accidentally ran into the wrong version of Kevin and kind of realized it and slowly backed away from him. It was a spooky scene when he had the flashlight there. Yeah, too. but after sharing this really tender moment with him yeah, where you know he's really nice to her in this way that he hasn't been all evening, and so she's got that in her mind now, now that she knows that there are all these different like alternate realities and everything, and then she gets to the point where like her whatever reality it is that she's stumbled into or she's ended up in she makes this choice that just like oh well reality as i know it isn't the only option anymore yeah and so she takes 
this what seems like a huge leap of faith, but also she has nothing to lose at this point because she's not even in her home reality anymore. And once she, it seems once you walk out, you're not coming back. It's like you said in the film, it's like a roulette wheel. When you walk through that dark patch, mm-hmm. it just spits you out randomly. Yeah, and you have no idea what it is that you're going to stumble into, but she just hits this point where she's like, well, I'm sure there's going to be something better than this. And she starts kind of doing this tour of... Uh, of these different realities and she starts like shopping for what seems yeah, like it's going to be that's like a good way to put it her just a better version and she sees these other like horrible ones where like there's one where somebody's tied up there was uh, two mics tied up in the one oh yeah she was, looks yeah, in the one oh, window mics, and there's yeah. <laughs> yeah so i mean like there are some where people have gotten like incredibly aggressive there are some where uh you know there's one where her fiance or where her boyfriend is lovingly draped in the arms of of Lori, the woman who yep. you know, she, you know her uh, Kevin's ex. Yep. Uh, and in this reality, they've ended up together, or they've they've you know just rediscovered their love for each other, or whatever. I guess there was one cut one. There was one cut reality. I don't know if it was just because it was too silly, where they were performing an exorcism over the body of Mike. Really? Or no, they were doing a séance. So this was clearly a reality where what's Hugh's wife's name? Beth. This was clearly a reality where like Beth was put in charge. Of course, because <laughs> that's what he says. You're all feng shui and granola candles. And- <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, and yeah. So then ultimately she she ends up in this other one where she f- sees a life that she wants, and then somehow being in this fractured state of not knowing what reality is. This is like completely suspended morality, I guess, because you can just create the reality that you want and she decides to do so by like killing her this because she finds a reality She's in her own way i mean she finds this reality where it seems like it's everything that she wants where she's uh you know she's with kevin she's the prima ballerina in the dance show right um it's only like mentioned really briefly but yeah it's like everything that she could possibly want the only problem is everybody's happy in it including the Emily that's the other Emily and so she just like straight up murders herself or tries to and is unsuccessful twice twice (laughs) Lori says that at the beginning there's at the dinner party before Hugh and Amir even leave he she makes mention of that she says so I can't remember the name of the she talks about losing the dance show because she took too long to decide which is in you know in turn what's her problems with Kevin because obviously he wants to move somewhere but she keeps saying I need more time to think about it which is obviously her crutch in life is not being able to you know make decisions right and Lori specifically says so this woman has your life right you know which obviously so then this comes full circle yeah this this actualized emily (laughs) sees that there is somebody who has a life that she wants and she was willing to take it she just has to literally go through herself to do it yeah and then you get that really cool moment at the end where where the kevin of that reality gets a phone call and it's all just left super ambiguous and i like that I like that it's not wrapped up with a bow right at the end. I, I appreciate that in film too. It was, I wonder if there was, okay, you'd be able to answer this question to me. You've read more about the film than I have. Was there any uh, alternate endings that you've heard about or anything like that? I didn't see anything about alternate endings. No. Um, and maybe this is a good place to transition into talking about how the movie got made. Yeah. Because the basic outline for the movie and how it was supposed to go took about a year to put together 
and I'm being careful to say to not say that it was written over the course of a year because this movie actually wasn't written it was planned in that none of the actors were given a script they were given basic character motivations very cool and almost everything in this movie is actually improv really yeah so that would lend itself well into the why I, one of the reasons I really like this movie because it felt so naturalistic. Right, but it feels naturalistic, but they have professional actors doing it. Sure, of course. <laughs> As, which is different than just doing like reality TV or a sure. podcast or something like that, right? Yeah. Where it's these uh, and in some cases people who haven't necessarily improv before. Like the guy who played Kevin apparently was very nervous about this. Um and what's uh what's Mike's wife's name? Lee. Lee. Um, so the woman who played Lee, for instance, she didn't know. Like, nobody knew what anybody else was going to be doing. They were just given, like, basic character motivations. And in some cases, they were actually in conflict with each other. Like, you know the scene where Kevin tries to leave mm-hmm. and Emily stops him from leaving? Freaks out, yeah. Right. So the direction that she was given in that moment was... Or the, the direction that Kevin was given in that moment is you want to try to leave the house. And her motivation and was, her, you can't let yeah, him leave the house. you can't let him leave the house. And, like, wow. neither one was told, like, where it was supposed to ultimately end up. That's really cool. They just let it play out. And uh, Amir, the, the person who played Amir, actually was kind of like a mole because he co-wrote the movie. Really? So if people were getting a little bit too off script, then he could kind of step in and start to guide the scene back in the direction that they needed it wow. to go. And, <laughs> amazingly... Uh, if you had to guess, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but I Go mean, ahead. like, you're used to Star Wars movies, right? Like, that's typically, like, that's, like, your bread and butter, right? Sure. You're talking about these Star Wars yep, movies. absolutely. And so you're talking about, uh, you know, big budget movies, right? Mm-hmm. So do you have, if you had to make any kind of guess, how much do you think it costs to make Coherence? That's a good question. Not a lot. Not as far as films go. I'm Okay, I'm going to, I'd hazard a guess at, I'm, I'm going to say less than $2 million. Fifty thousand dollars. You're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so you're kidding. Fifty grand, and it was filmed over five days. That's really. It. Yeah. So I guess the director wanted to really like the idea of filming it in his own house, and so the ultimatum that he was. You given, can tell it wasn't a soundstage. It wasn't a set. <laughs> um. So the ultimatum that he was given by his wife, who was eight and a half weeks or eight and a half months pregnant at the time, was <laughs> fine. You can film this in our house but you can do only do it if you film it in five days because I'm not giving birth with, like, strangers in my house. <laughs> I can't really blame her on that one. No, not at all. And he pulled it off. And I guess the fifth day of filming, she actually did go into labor, so that was unfortunate for her. But uh, <laughs> so over the course of those five days, like, nobody really knew what was going on. Like, Lee, for instance, she didn't know until the third day of filming. She didn't realize that it wasn't, like, a broad comedy movie that they were making like she thought maybe it was like a mumblecore sort of like fun everybody's hanging out sort of thing and like her job is to disappear for a bit and she does she's sleeping for half the movie yeah so I mean she's one of the few people that never leaves the house I think her and Beth are the only ones that are actually that never leave the house I think everyone else goes through the darkness well, everybody leaves the... People go outside, but they, they do make point that there, there was right. that dark section of the street, yeah, yeah, yeah. and when you walked through it, that, that not to get off topic there. Right. Um, I forget how we got going on this, but I felt like it was important to start talking about it. Mm. But uh, No, it's cool. I didn't know any of that. 
Yeah, so that's why I was saying that, like, once you understand, like, once you hear about, like, the story behind the movie, then you're just like, well, this is even greater. I, like, because, I, like, I gotta it, go watch it again now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, like, the, the stuff that we've been talking about with, like, things being, like, very naturalistic and things like that, like, that's actually... I can see why. Yeah. And, I mean, like, I don't know if you noticed the credits. Like, the credits are super short. They are. And that's because... Aside from the actors in the movie, there are only five people who are on set. Yeah. Like, there was the director, two sound techs. Um, Some editing. But, like, you even mentioned the, uh, like, the camera work, how it was kind of like, like, it was done with a handheld camera. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't even an aesthetic choice. That was just done out of necessity. Of right. Being like, the, he literally didn't know where these people were going to go around the house. He had to be, yeah. And he had to be able to follow them and follow the scene and follow where the action was at. Makes sense. Yeah. So knowing that, I mean, I think that that makes, like, Nicholas Brennan's performance, for instance, just because he's the one who I know more of a biography about, like, it makes me really look at the choices that that character makes and knowing about some of the struggles that Nicholas Brennan has been going through pretty much his entire life, like, that... Like that's really challenging. Before before coming in, I was watching his interview with Doctor Phil and reading a bit about his trouble and everything. So I don't know how much of this was written and how much of this was Nicholas Brennan bringing it to the table. But either Does way, he actually have problems with alcoholism. Or? Yeah. So it, really? I mean, it's, it's really hard to ignore the the parallels here because Nicholas Brendan is somebody who has had problems with alcohol. He's had multiple stints in rehab, but on top of that, he's also somebody who has. It, you know, has clear problems with his self worth. Like he, he spoke openly on Doctor Phil about attempting suicide on two occasions, and wow, he's he's that. somebody who, I mean, if you look at like Mike, like Mike is willing, like he's just he's he's always on the cusp of getting angry and violent, self destructive. Yeah, and I mean Nicholas Brennan himself has gotten in trouble with the law for unf- like I mean this is regrettable and awful and i want to condemn it but i mean like attacking domestic partners and like he got in trouble for i think it was uh like choking a girlfriend in a hotel or grabbing somebody by the neck like that was his most recent legal trouble and that was just in october of last year really yeah so i mean after the film has been made and come out yeah Yeah. so and i mean like he's yeah (laughs) there's a scene in the film where when he starts drinking and he says to lee his wife i fucked up and she said, should I get the bat? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, in, in obviously, some kind of reference to the character, some character references, do I need to protect myself from you right now? You yeah. Know? And that's, I had no idea. Yeah, so, I mean, that puts this whole other, like, really dark tone to it. But wow, it's also, yeah. like, you know, is that Nicholas Brendan being in touch with he had to have been himself feeding off his enough own... to the point of, like, like, fine, like, here's what I'm bringing to this character? You would think. So, uh... I don't see how... I mean, he has to have been, um, he had to have been drawing on his own experiences and his own struggles because he made it work and he made it look pretty real. Mm-hmm. You know, when he first started drinking and Kevin said, like when he left the house, that look on his face. And one of this, one of the things that I've been trying to uh, pick out of this movie is when did Mike actually start drinking in this movie? Because it's tough to tell because there's one scene where he leaves when he said he was going to go blackmail himself and he leaves and he comes back and he sees Kevin when he comes back in and uh, Kevin says, where'd you go? You know, you've been gone for 45 minutes because not left five minutes ago. And Kevin's like, no, man, you left 45 minutes ago. And he kind of put those two fingers into his forehead and he's like, you're fucking crazy and walked away. But as far as the storyline in the film goes, that was before he decided to have his first drink. Yeah. 
but was this a different Mike that already started drinking at the other house and has now shown up? Obviously it was because he says that he was only gone for 10 minutes, but well, we know that it was a different Mike. We don't know if he's already been drinking. We don't, we don't, yeah. but it's, it, it's a possibility. Yeah. It's one of the, the layers of this film are incredible, but I had no idea that it's Brendan. What's his first name? Like Nicholas, Brendan. Nicholas, Brendan. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some reading myself on this tonight, man. Because I, I have all these notes about the film because <laughs> I love this movie so much. Yeah. I had no idea the inner workings of it. Yeah, so I, it, I almost like I almost regret bringing it up because I feel like the movie stands so well on its own. But it's also just like it gets this extra layer of like, like it, it's got its own mythology built into it. That mm-hmm. it's it's like like people don't a lot of people don't make movies this interesting. With a budget of five million dollars, yeah, let alone yeah. with the constraints that this has. I mean, like this is a director who, before this, directed shorts, music videos, and the Rango video game. Wow! Like it seems like this movie shouldn't exist with the, uh, you know, with the resumes of everybody involved. But it's just it's made in this really like earnest effort to just kind of make something pure, and it ends up being that. It's a great example of what you can do with good idea and some really good creativity. Um, how much did you say it cost to make? 55000 or something? 50000 That's yeah. crazy. Because, I mean, I referenced Blair Witch Project when we first started talking tonight. and It's one of my favorite films. Not because I think it's the best film ever made, but I think it was really original at the time. No Films weren't made like that at the time. Uh, similar in respect to what you're saying about this film, how a lot of it was uh, character points. And Blair Witch Project was made in a similar way to that. There was a script, but it was a loose script. And when they were camping out in the woods, they didn't know actually where the directors were. When when they woke up in the morning and all the kind of the all the pagan stuff was was in the trees and stuff like that, they literally it was put there while they were sleeping in their tents. Like mm-hmm. so, those reactions when they got up, oh my god, what's that? That's creepy. Those were real reactions. You know, right. obviously when she finds Buddy's teeth wrapped up, she knew that they weren't real teeth. But oh, still, they, they're, there's yeah. reactions there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That, that are that are real, and uh, that's similar to way the way this movie was was created. Um, mm-hmm. Not completely ad libbed, but that one of the things about this film that I really like. There's no time to catch your breath with this movie. There's no meanwhile back at the ranch, right? You know, which you get in a lot of films. You get that that moment where you can breathe. And you don't get that in this one. It just it picks up steam and just keeps getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what else do you have? What do you have on your on your notes there that we haven't had a chance to get to? Just from the very very opening of the film, one of the things, and I doubt this is part of the plot, but when she's speaking to Mike at the very very beginning, like when the, her phone first cracks when she's driving in the car, you almost wonder if she's talking to multiple mics on the phone. At that point, because she keeps losing him, or sorry, multiple Kevins. Kevin, right? Can I? I lost you. Is that better? No, and he keeps going in and out. Oh, that's curious. You know, I, yeah. I doubt it. Yeah, that's something that you could only think about watching it a second time. Sure, it's it's just it's one of those layers. You know what I mean? Just little things that I wrote down as I was watching, and I've had the luxury of watching this movie several times. But um, uh, some of the points that I loved about the movie, the one location thing, brilliant. Um, yeah, I think that was the challenge that the director set for himself was just like, I just want to make a movie in just one spot. Yeah. If you ever get the chance, um, see if you can find a copy of uh, The Man from Earth. I don't, it's not on Netflix. 
it was made by the by a direct by a, a writer named Jerome Bixby. Jerome Bixby, and he wanted to make this movie for like thirty or forty years. He had the idea for this film, and then he ended up passing away. And I think his son made it. But again, it takes place in one house. Really, really cool. Really cool idea, man. And maybe one actor that I recognized. It's I, I won't say anything else about. It. I'll let you just uh, but let you look into that one because it's not on Netflix. But. Uh, Anybody listening, if you want to see another cool film that kind of takes place in one location with some really cool um, thinker film, twists and turns, check out The Man from Earth. Yeah, I've got it down here, like the found footage style. Um, It's filmed as though you're actually there. Mm -hmm. It really feels like you're in the room with them. And I think part of that has to do with the fact, like you said, a lot of this was improv Yeah, and it's... I mean, I I don't pretend to know what goes on inside the mind of an actor when they're doing whatever it is that they choose to do, but I think that there is something inherently authentic when somebody is encouraged to really live in a role and to explore who that person is. I mean, in Nicholas Brandon's case, it sounds like he went very personal with it. You're going to get your motivation where you get it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it makes me wonder about what conflicts were written in and what kind of happened organically like when when they're sitting at the table and mike starts getting really aggro with Lori, and you're like you two barely know each other like why are you attacking this woman who's there as like your friend's guest yeah and uh you know he starts chirping her and she gives back and she's like whoa like what's what's going on here like i i don't know but it also like it feels like a very lived in space because who knows like maybe nicholas brendan and that actress who, out of respect, I'm going to look up her name. Maybe they genuinely didn't like each other. Yeah, maybe they just, like, didn't get along on set. Or maybe they're just both professionals and they tapped into this yeah. this vibe. Or maybe it was written. Like, we don't we don't really know. But the fact that, uh, the fact that any of those could be true yeah. is a compliment to somebody. I'm just not sure who to direct it to. Oh, it's uh, Lauren Marr. That's another thing about this Lori. film that you just reminded me of. There's a lot of uh, a lot of the characters in this film actually have their actual names. Oh shit, the Mike thing. Sorry. Mm, go ahead. You know how you said there's multiple Mikes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nicholas Brennan has a twin brother. You're kidding? Yeah. Oh no doubt. So it, it had to have been him that they were they were tied up beside each other. Yeah, like, he is. I just saw him. Oh, it is. Day. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um. Yeah. They they did that on Buffy too when there were like two Xanders. One of them was his brother. Right. Yeah. That's coming back to me now. It's been a long time since I've seen that show. My friend is just watching it for the first time, so she's, like, texting me all about it. Oh, it's like, oh, you've got this coming. She just finished it, and she's on to the fifth season of Angel now. No doubt. Yeah. Joss Whedon. So I'm living vicariously through her right now. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think think that about says it. I think this has been a pretty effective ad for (laughs) Coherence, if nothing else. So, Patrick, let's wrap this this thing up the way that we always do and uh that is by letting me know whether this movie gets a thumbs up or a thumbs down on your own personal netflix profile and i want you to choose an mvp from the movie as well definitely thumbs up for me uh this movie had me from the first time i watched it and now after talking to you i I appreciate it even more (laughs) so definitely a thumbs up mvp for this if i was gonna i'll go thumbs up and i you know i i go four out of five on this movie i really do i think top to bottom it's really solid there's not much weakness in this film um there's very little baggage in this movie um very little clutter um as far as an MVP of the of the movie, I mean, and I would have said this before, and I'll, you know, even it's even enhanced now, would be the character of Mike. Uh, is it Nicholas Brendan? Nicholas Brendan. Nicholas yeah. Brendan. Um, 
certainly my favorite character in the film, the most intriguing character. Um, he would have been my MVP before, and now that's even enhanced. Now knowing where he comes from, how the movie was filmed, and his real life struggles, a hundred percent would be Mike. Would be uh, would be my favorite character. If I had to pick, I don't know if you were gonna go this way. If I had to pick a, a weaker character, I think Laurie to me was probably the weakest link. Not the character. I just didn't think. I thought of all the performances. I, I, there's something about her that just rubbed me the wrong way in her performance a little bit. In no way does it detract from the movie. Um, but yeah, best performance definitely would be Mike. He'd be my, my MVP. Yeah. I'll. Uh, what about you? Yeah, my. My rating's a thumbs up for sure. I, I thought it was really cool uh, right after seeing the movie. I thought it was extra cool after reading about it and finding out about how it was made. We don't often do this, but I mean, in terms of like a, a weaker point, I would say, unfortunately, a lot of the expositional heavy lifting ends up falling on Emily's shoulders. Mm. Like They're like, hey, tell us about that other Wikipedia article that you read about the Tunguskan meteor event yeah she seemed to know everything about it yeah and i was just like <laughs> oh like it's it's unfortunate because yeah. it's just like it's hard to in this movie that's otherwise so natural to go through that kind of exposition. in such a confined space with a small cast and one set yeah so i mean she had a she had a tough <laughs> job but i mean when there are other parts like towards the end when she like decides to steal you know her own life you know she makes up for it mm-hmm. um so i mean that's that's the one the one downside to the movie was the clumsiness in getting through the exposition, but I don't, I don't have a suggestion for how to do it better. And right. I don't think there's a way to do this movie exactly like they did without having that information and without giving that to you so that you know what's going on. Cause I mean, you could do this movie without explaining what's going on and just kind of let people figure it out on their own. But you also, you don't have to do that. Like you can have a movie that has complicated things in it without, forcing your viewer to do all it would have been easier to write it as a short story you probably would have been able to get that exposition a lot more easily but in a a film where you're you're subjected to the scene and that scene so i think it was a challenge that they just didn't totally overcome but i think as a whole the movie totally it's fine it's just something that you get through on this on this overall great journey um, in terms of an MVP, I did, like, as I was watching the movie, I was like, yeah, Nicholas Brendan um, for really pulling it off. I, I realized as well that I was bringing some prejudice into it because I was just like, you know, rah, rah, Buffy. Yeah. But then after reading about it, I also, like, I kind of want to take it back because, yes, it's all there. But I also think that we're, it's very easy to do the whole let's separate the art from the artist thing. And I think that, like, you know, if you assault a domestic partner, then you're pretty much canceled unless that person has, has you know, publicly forgiven you. Fair enough. Um, so instead, but I'm going to give it to the director because as, a, as an overall project, Coherence is just super cool. And I've said that so many times. And I mean, fuck, making a grown man insist that something is cool is not cool. But uh, yeah, MVP no, goes, it is to, cool. <laughs> goes to uh, James Ward Birkett. Sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. That's the director? Yeah. Did he write it? Uh, yeah, he wrote it so along with uh, the guy who played Amir, who is Alex Mnugin. Now, was he a co-writer or a co-producer? Or? Uh, who? The guy who played Amir. Uh, it was story by. Okay. It was the two of them. Oh, okay. So the story was by uh, James Ward, James Ward Birkin and Alex Mnugin, and the screenplay itself was uh, was written by the director as well. 
so yeah I, I think that just like bringing it all together and doing just this this movie is an accomplishment and i think that accomplishment while it is you know the, the sum of many parts i think that it comes across largely because of the work of this person who made it all happen yeah all right well patrick it's been a lot of fun uh thank you so much for bringing this movie into my and now our our audience at large's purview i've talked to a lot of people about this after watching it because i was just like really keen to just like hey if you like i want to talk to somebody about coherence have you seen it have you seen it and nobody had heard of it so at the very least we are boosting the signal of a very cool little movie thanks for having me man i was pleasure to come and talk to you about it this is this is the same thing with me this is a movie that is this this is a movie that really can spawn some really good conversation Mm -hmm. and uh had a really good one i'm i was really happy to be here man i hope we can do it again sometime so the the floor is open please plug your shit tell everybody what you're working on or where they can find you um well i mean where you can find me whoops sorry hard cut where you can find me normally is on the Quarter Portion Podcast. Uh, me and my good friend Chris DeHoog, we kind of break down everything Star Wars. <laughs> As you were saying before, more big budget stuff. But we talk uh, everything Star Wars. We usually put out one or two podcasts a month. Um, you can uh, link to our podcast through our website at uh, kyberclub.com, which is K-Y-B-E-R-C-L-U-B.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Django Fletch which is a <laughs> shameless Star Wars plug. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my geeky love uh, with Chris is our, our uh, quarter portion Star Wars podcast. And you guys do just pretty much anything any anything new that comes up, like yeah, your most recent episode that I don't think is quite out yet is a reaction to the Solo trailer. It'll be out in the next few days. Yeah, it was a reaction to the Solo, the, the, the new Han Solo Star Wars story trailer, which broke at the Super Bowl. And then the day after they put out like a more of a full-length teaser i guess if you can call a teaser full length um that'll be out in the next few days um we're going to be doing a review of empire strikes back soon uh, but it's not just the films that we talk about we talk about kind of everything star wars we talk about all the canon novels comic books uh behind the scenes what uh, certain actors are doing and other projects and things like that so uh it's kind of everything star wars that we get into not just uh not just the films themselves yeah i definitely recommend checking it out if uh somebody's looking for somewhere to start then uh the uh the Princess Leia retrospective. That's probably that was, one of our best ones. Yeah, that was a really solid episode, and I learned a lot. And Thanks. It really gave me a deeper appreciation for the character, because I know that like the internet is in love with Carrie Fisher and has been for the last you know year and a half. Mm-hmm. But uh, such a shame. But really, like everything that Leia as a character has meant in the canon is is something not just that the canon too. What Leia represented to film. Um, the character itself from when it came out in 1977 one of the strongest female characters whether you like sci-fi or not whether you like Star Wars or not Princess Leia really represented um, not just a heroine but like a really strong female character in a time that was just you know dominated by just the swashbuckling man saving the damsel in distress she was one of the first female characters that didn't need saving. She ended up kind of saving everybody else. Right. And uh, I think uh, the movie world in general owes Carrie Fisher a great debt of gratitude. I mean, partly for George Lucas for writing the character, but Carrie Fisher took that character in a lot of ways that I don't even think George Lucas ever saw it going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she'll be missed. Yeah. All right, man. Well, sorry to end on a somber note. but That's okay. But thanks again for bringing this movie to the table, and uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, man. I, I'd like to do it again sometime. Thank you.
That's pretty much everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of our content like show notes, articles, reviews, and our spin-off podcast called Rattling the Cage, where co-host Caroline Deason and I discuss the oeuvre of the one and only Nicolas Cage. If you head over to today's show notes, you're going to find things like links off to everywhere that you can find the Quarter Portion Podcast's content, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as their website, Facebook, and Twitter. I've also embedded that tweet that I mentioned all about uh, Cloverfield Paradox's marketing campaign, and you can find easy-to-click links off to the two episodes that I mentioned over the course of this conversation of this very podcast namely episode 86 where i talked about gerald's game with courtney enlow and the bonus episode just before that where i got to interview jed bryan all about his found footage horror movie unlisted owner if you want to follow us you can find us on social media on facebook as netflix on twitter at netflix pod where you can find me at dylan clark moore and we're on soundcloud as netflix podcast if you want to support the show the best way to do it is to tell people about it if you want to go even further you can head to itunes google play stitcher or wherever you found this bitch and giving us a rating and a review to let the entire universe know what you thought if you still feel like that's not enough and you want to be one of my favorite people on the whole entire ass planet you can support us monetarily over on patreon patreon allows you to donate as little as one dollar a month to keep creative projects going and really there's no more important creative project on the planet than the one you're listening to right now so either search for netflix on patreon or just hit the support netflix button at the top of netflix.ca This episode, as always, was produced and edited by yours truly, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time when I'm going to be talking about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.